What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey everyone, this is Aisha dropping in here to remind you all that we are having a live show at Sundance on Tuesday, January 23rd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at the Filmmaker Lodge. You can join myself and the Culture Gap Fest team, that's Steven, Dana, and Julia, for an exclusive show presented by Dropbox. The following podcast contains explicit language. Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Quickly, please. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. Hence the soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you love Brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought Brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own fucking eggs. I wanted to. You won't let me. Hey everyone, I'm Ayesha Harris and this is Represent. We're just a few days away from entering the final stretch of award season. Oscar nominations will be announced on January 23rd, and so we're going to devote today's episode to this year's ceremony. In a bit, you'll hear a conversation with renowned filmmaker Charles Burnett, who was awarded an honorary Academy Award last fall. But first, perhaps more so than in the last couple of years, the Oscar race seems to be completely open. Yes, there are a couple of fairly obvious shoe-ins here and there, like Laurie Metcalf as a Best Supporting Actress nominee for her amazing performance in Lady Bird, but uncertainty largely prevails in many of the major categories. The one thing that does feel certain, many of the films, filmmakers, and performances vying for awards will be doing so in a highly charged political climate. And I'm pleased to have as my guest today someone who has written many sharp takes on Oscar seasons past and present, Mark Harris. He's the author of the film history books Pictures at a Revolution and Five Came Back, as well as a writer at Vulture. Welcome, Mark. It's great to have you on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I do want to say really quickly that I've been a huge fan of yours since Pictures at a Revolution. Uh, I've, I've read it twice, uh, which is not yeah, something I usually do with most books. <laughs> so I highly recommend all of our listeners to check it out. It's uh, about the uh, 1968, well, 1967-1968 Oscar season uh, in which there were five movies and you kind of depict, you, you basically break down the the each film and the making of those films and how it relates to a critical turning point between uh, the old Hollywood and the new Hollywood era. It's really great. Um, so, yes. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, we're actually coming up on the um, 50th anniversary of that Oscar ceremony, which was uh, a very, um, for, for different reasons, and now a very political uh ceremony at a time when that was not usually the case. Right, right. And that that was the same year that In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier, won. So that's, yes, for many reasons, very important. So, but I do want to talk about this year, and you've written a little bit so far. You back in November, actually, you wrote a piece and and for Vulture about sort of the impending Oscar season. We weren't quite in the throes of it yet; things were still kind of up in the air. But now we are just a few days away. And you said in that piece, and we'll put a link to that in our show page as well. Um, you wrote that in what promises to be an attempt at the first woke Oscars, there is one narrative that threatens to overwhelm all others, the movie that speaks to our present crisis, uh, which I I think we've, I think that's become even more apt of a, of a statement 
in the last couple of months because there's been so much happening. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like, do you still feel that way or do you want to like walk back that statement? <laughs> I do still feel that way, but um, I think the the thing I would add to it if I were writing that now is like, but which present exactly. crisis are we talking about? Because Usually there's one movie or maybe two movies um, in in any given Best Picture race that kind of attempts to lay claim to this is the movie of the moment, this is the political movie of our times. This year, I think there are like five or six movies that uh, are trying to, you know, own different facets of that that case. And, and you know, that to me is really fascinating and and just about unprecedented and when you combine that with the other big factor that has changed um which is the membership of the academy itself uh in ways that we don't fully understand um you have i think uh, not only a really interesting Oscars coming up, but potentially a really interesting new. Yeah, era I mean, the let's let's actually break down all of the different issues that uh, each of these movies sort of either conveys or wants to highlight. Because there, like you said, there are a lot of things going on. The the thing that seems to be at the forefront right now, just coming off uh, off the the Golden Globes, like a little more than a week after the Golden Globes, and the thing that seems to be at the forefront at this moment is the Me Too movement and the the, the role that women have played in, in film and, and the types of subject matters that are coming up in these films that have the Oscar nomination potential. We have I, Tanya, which is based uh, on the Tanya Harding, um, Nancy Kerrigan scandal of the early 90s. And that movie very much tries to paint Tanya Harding in a much softer light than I think we've gotten in, in, in the past. And that deals a lot with domestic abuse, right. um, the the portrayal of women in figure skating and, and how feminine they had to be. So we have that sort of movie. Uh, what do you think are the chances for that movie sort of breaking out? I feel like Margot Robbie is a shoe-in for Best Actress nomination, but the movie, it could go either way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think Margot Robbie and Alison Janney for Best Supporting Actress are probably both guaranteed nominations. Um, it, it seems to me that I, Tanya is one of the movies that uh, came on really strong in in the last couple of weeks of of the voting period. So, uh, you know, it, it it pulled off a surprise Producers Guild nomination for Best Picture. Um, I think it got a Writers Guild nomination. So. Uh, uh, um, maybe I'm wrong about the writer's guild, but um, but you know when you talk to Academy voters, they they really respond strongly to the performances, and um, so it's a movie like if there was going to be a really left field best picture nomination, that would be you know my guess, like something that comes from outside the the perceived ten or twelve front runners. Uh, it could be I Tanya, but you know like a lot of the movies we're going to talk about. The, the sort of political message of uh, I, Tanya, wh- whatever it is, is very mixed. Like, it's 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 a Me Too movie in some ways, but it's also, like, um, a really anti-media movie. Like, the whole argument of, of uh, I, Tanya is, like, we in the press got her all wrong, and we missed story and we didn't tell this the right way um that that you know the the, the classism um and and 
misogyny of the press uh, is responsible for, you know, what the movie contends is a misunderstanding of Tanya Harding, which I have some issues with, but but it's it's very typical of this year in that um, the politics, the social politics of that movie are not clean. Right. So, yeah, it seems like I, Tanya could be sort of a left field pick. But we also have, on the other hand, a movie like Three Billboards, uh, which kind of also has mixed politics. That is dealing with gender, Me Too, but also race. And it depending on who you talk to, it handles one really well and one not really well or neither really well or <laughs> right. it, it, it's it's strange. It, it, it cleaned up at the uh, at the Golden Globes. It, it did really well there. Um, you know, Francis McDormand won. It won best. Uh, was it best comedy? Um, it was best drama. It, 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 they cantered it as a drama. Yeah. Right. Right. And so it seems to have maybe peaked there. I'm not sure about its chances getting into the to the actual race just because it is so polarizing. Right. I mean, always, uh, I think it's going to get a bunch of nominations, definitely. Um, because again, like I, Tanya, people are so um, cued into the performances, which are probably the strongest. Um, I think even people who don't like the movie would agree that the performances are the strongest aspect of it. That, that it will be in several races. But um, yeah, the, it's the... It, to me, it's like the most interesting movie of the year to talk about in terms of the academy and politics, because when it first started playing a, a couple of months ago, what I was hearing was, oh, this is winning. Like, this is the Me Too movie. This is the movie about the importance of listening to women. This is the movie about um, angry women finding their voices at long last. And um, then, as more people started to see it and talk about it, um, the the movie's very to to me at least troubling relationship with with questions of race um started to become more a part of the conversation and and you know now it is a polarizing movie i don't think that it's going to play as well overall with the academy as it did with the you know 80 foreign journalists at the golden globes um and i think a lot of Older Academy members are about to hear the word intersectionality for the first time and, and <laughs> get a quick education in, in some of the issues around that. This may be overthinking it because I think a lot of people just um, vote for what they like. You know, it, it's it's not like they sit there hand-wringing over their ballot and saying, oh, but was it really fair to, you know, possibly not that much thought goes into it. On the other hand, um, polarizing movies, as you pointed out, have a hard time winning, um, partly because of the uh, the the way the preferential ballot decides best picture, but but uh, you know partly because these arguments do get heard, and and I think three billboards, I mean it could certainly win best picture, but but at this point it would slightly surprise me because I think the people who don't like that movie really don't like that movie and the more people hear that it is a front runner or the front runner the more those people are going to dig in again right it. right one one last movie that I think fits uh, pretty neatly into the me too discussion but not because of the actual film itself but because of the narrative being pushed behind it is is ladybird um, that movie I think in many ways is just because it's in my opinion very well written directed and and shows a character, a female character, a young female character we don't usually see or have rarely seen. Um, it, there's a narrative that, you know, 
this is Greta Gerwig's chance to be that woman who gets nominated for best director. Um, she gets to the, and this could be the story that could also potentially. I don't know if winning Best Picture is is really a possibility, but it could at least wind up being a Best Picture film. And it's, it's been very interesting to watch uh, this this narrative play out, especially at the Golden Globes after Natalie Portman made her what may or may not have been off the cuff statement about. Um, there being no ma- female directing uh, nominations at the Golden Globes, it's been interesting to me to watch this play out, and and I hope I kind of hope it gets it sneaks its way into the Best Picture category, but I'm not sure. I, I still I'm worried. <laughs> I, I don't think it's gonna sneak its way into the Best Picture category. I think it's gonna march right into the Best Picture category. Like Ooh. that that to me is like a really really. Likely nominee. I think there are bigger questions about, uh, you know, Greta Gerwig for for a best director nomination because the director branches is, is really strange. But you, I mean, I'm so glad that you pointed out that when we talk about Oscar narratives, we're often talking about two different things. I mean, some some movies have Oscar narratives because of what they're about, because of their actual content. And, and the narrative for other movies has to do with the circumstances of their making or the people who made them. And, and, you know, Lady Bird is not, um, an overtly political, uh, movie in what it's about. And yet, of course, having an independent movie made by a 34 year old female writer director, um, be treated with the same attention and respect that, you know, all the movies made by men are, are treated with is, is in itself a political statement. And, and so voting for Lady Bird, voting for Greta Gerwig would satisfy a kind of a desire on the part of some Academy voters to, to say, I want to pick a movie that feels really right for this year and this moment that we're dealing with. Yeah. And and even just that's that's sort of what I think many of us feminists want is is not to necessarily have to um, parade in in this movie that's very loudly announces its feminism, but that is just sort of it. Ex- the fact that it just exists in itself is and and does so in a way that um, feels accomplished and feels good. Uh, I think is 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 a good step towards feeling good about that that vote. Yeah, and also I don't know a lot of people who like I know people who love Lady Bird and I know people who sort of say I don't quite get what the big deal is but I liked it. Right. I don't know people who hated it. And and that is a big asset if you're trying to win an Oscar. Like a movie that people it, it's a little bit I mean it this will sound like an odd comparison but um it it's a little bit like Moonlight last year in that you know there were some people who were really passionate about it. There were some people who admired it. There were some people who liked it. I didn't hear anyone say, I hate Moonlight. Mm. I did hear people say, I hate La La Land. Because, <laughs> yes. because anytime something becomes that much of a front, like, you know, you, you, people always feel good about hating a movie, you know, on that scale. Right. Who's going to say, I hate Moonlight? You sound like a terrible person. <laughs> you know? um, and in a way, Lady Bird... Um, may have that kind of uh advantage you know i mean how can you how can you hate that movie even if you don't respond to it directly even if you don't respond to uh connect with the experiences in it um you have to enjoy uh Greta Gerwig's ability to 
elicit such good performances from such a big cast. You have to enjoy some of the writing. Like, there's something in there you're going to appreciate. Yeah, it's just, a, I, I feel like it's a very inherently likable movie. So I completely agree with that. Moving on, one of the movies that I thought would be, and, and you know, Seth Meyers actually made the joke at the Golden Globes in his opening monologue uh, about The Post, and The Post, which is uh, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's latest movie, which tells the story of the Washington Post getting uh, deciding to print the Pentagon Papers after the New York Times had done uh, or part of the Pentagon Papers after the New York Times had already done so and had been, um, you know, forbidden by the government to do so. And it has an all star cast. It's Spielberg. Everyone loves Spielberg. And I thought that that was going to be the one early on that would, would take it. And I think a lot of people thought that. But it also doesn't seem like it's a it's a front runner. Like, it doesn't seem like it's a clear shoe-in necessarily. I think it will get nominated, but I'm not sure if it'll have much momentum going forward. Yeah, I don't think anything is a, a clear shoe-in. I mean, the, the, the story with The Post has really interested me because I think this is a place where there was a little bit, there may be a little bit of a disconnect between the press and Academy voters because, you know, like a week or so ago, I was reading these stories that were sort of like, you know, The Post is dead, The Post is over. Um, you know, and they were predicated on the fact that two groups of journalists, the Golden Globes and the Broadcast uh, Critics Association, um, did not honor it. But, you know, then this last weekend, the Post opened wide for the first time and did really big business and, like, overperformed expectations and made something like $23 million over Martin Luther King Day weekend. And um, it's clearly going to make a lot more money. I think if voting ended this Friday rather than last Friday. I mean, if voting had been one week longer, the Post would be in very good shape to get a lot of nominations. You know, older, whiter, more traditional part of the Academy is not as large a percentage of the Academy as it used to be, but it's still a very, very large percentage of the Academy. And so I don't think anybody should be surprised when the Post or Dunkirk or Darkest Hour gets a bunch of nominations. I mean, those voters are are going to be heard and and you know they're not just sound guys like the post satisfies many people's desire in Hollywood for a big studio to make a movie with established A-list top-tier talent that grapples with something that's going on. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you one last question because I think this uh, even more so than I Tanya feels like a to me, at least, it feels like a maybe um, is Call Me By Your Name, which uh, I I think a lot of people really, really love. But I also haven't necessarily seen it feels like in, in the same sense as something like Lady Bird uh, or even Three Billboards. People really love the performances, especially. Um, but I'm, I'm curious early, early on when the movie came out, people were talking about, well, the mere story of it, the story at the center of it could make it doomed for the Oscars. Um, and, and mainly just the idea of a 17-year-old boy having a uh, attraction and relationship to a older 20, I think he's supposed to be 26-year-old man. What are your, what are your thoughts on all of, all of that? Well, I think, I think you're right. I think the movie is on the border. I mean, I was saying to someone, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it got eight nominations, and I wouldn't be surprised if it got two nominations. There's no question that 
uh, among a big uh, percentage of Academy voters, homophobia is still in play. It's not in play in the way it was in you know, 2005 when Brokeback Mountain was nominated. But there are people who are really uncomfortable with the relationship that's shown in Call Me By Your Name. And they find all kinds of ways to say it without saying it. They, they say, like, I just couldn't connect to it. Or I don't get really what the big deal was, was with that movie because nothing happens in it. Or, you know, I don't know. The story just didn't seem like it, it really, you know, was any uh, about anything real. Those are all sort of ways of saying I cannot find my way into this movie and I'm going to blame the movie for it. And, and of course, what I heard a ton of was versions of we just gave it to Moonlight as if, you know, the gay box had been checked off for another decade and nobody <laughs> would have to worry about this again until, you know, the mid 2020s. Right. Um, so, that's frustrating to me, and I, I admit a lot of bias here because I really love the movie and think it's a beautiful piece of work, and I would like to see it get in there in, in many categories. But, you know, I think the big determinant here that that we haven't mentioned is, as always in recent years, we have no idea how many Best Picture nominees there are going to be. Right. So, you know, so much of this is about, like, well, are there six or are there nine? Like, you know, the difference between eight nominees and nine nominees is the difference between one of these movies getting in and one of these movies just missing. And and I think of everything, uh, I'm kind of most in suspense about that this year. Like how it, it seems like a year where there's support for a lot of different movies. Theoretically, that should translate to a lot of Best Picture nominations, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, we shall. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on and, and talking with us. And I look forward to hopefully talking with you again about the Oscars if, you, if you're up for it. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And you can find Mark's work on Vulture. And you also have a book coming out, an uh, upcoming book on Mike Nichols, the director, correct? <laughs> an upcoming book on Mike Nichols uh, in a couple of years. <laughs> oh, OK. You're working on it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on it. Well, looking forward to that as well. Thanks so much. Thank you. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Up next, a conversation with Charles Burnett, a revered filmmaker who emerged from the period of groundbreaking black independent filmmaking known as the L.A. Rebellion, which took place from the late 1960s into the 1980s. Now, if you're not familiar with Burnett's work, I highly suggest starting with Killer of Sheep. It's a loose slice of life drama about a poor family attempting to scrape by in Watts, L.A. And you should also check out To Sleep With Anger, his magical realist drama starring Danny Glover as an old friend who overstays his welcome with friends while visiting from out of town due to his sly trickster ways. Harry! You got almighty, man! We haven't seen you in what? what? Must be 30 years or more. Susie, we ain't seen Harry since we left down home. Came all the way from Detroit by bus going to Oakland. Bus stopped in Los Angeles. I had to get off and take me a rest. You stay till you feel better now.
We talked about these movies, as well as the difficulties in finding an audience for independently made black films in 2016, around the time that To Sleep With Anger was enjoying a week-long run at the Lincoln Center in New York City. But on this Oscar-themed episode, we felt it was fitting to share the discussion with you now that he's finally gotten long-overdue recognition from the Academy. Check it out. Well, welcome to the show, Charles. It's an honor to have you here. Oh, it's an honor being here. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, I guess I'd love to start off with why you decided to become a filmmaker. What, What was, if you can name the moment where you remember, like, this is something I want to do with my life. When was that? Well, I I think growing up in the sixties and and you know being in that whole atmosphere of the civil rights movement and things like that, where people thought that you either were a part of the solution or part of the problem, uh, was a also a factor. And I you know you felt you incumbent that you were supposed to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, um, particularly if you had some sort of an education that sort of thing. But I think it started when I was in. Uh, elementary school when uh, I was sort of victimized in a certain sense. I remember the teacher would go down the aisle. There's one particular teacher, one particular day, and he sort of sort of predicted what each one of us was going to be. And he came down and, and he told a lot of people in front of me, you're not going to be anything. Well, you may be something. He got to me and said, you're not going to be anything. What? <laughs> so, yeah. Really? Was yeah. this a, a white teacher, a black teacher? Uh, it was a black teacher. Huh. Yeah. And uh, and then when I got to high school, it was a similar situation, you know, where the <laughs> our teacher would say, "Oh, God! If you got a brain, you'd be dangerous to all of us." It was really, it was, it was that kind of, wow, uh, you know, uh, uh, n- if you call it nurturing, it was that kind of sort of motivating you or something. I don't know, but you know, anyway, I I remember those moments, and I, but I also remember leaving junior high and looking back at it, and 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 I, I guess being heard by what was said and seeing how all the other students were uh, were affected by it. And I said, "I want to say something about this." write something about this. And I hadn't any idea of writing. I wasn't good in English or anything like that. But I knew that there was something I had to say about this situation, you know. And then when and, and when I got to, um, at a certain point, I was majoring in electronics, and I, and I, and I was started gravitating toward, toward creative writing. Mm. And I remember that commitment I, I, I made to myself. And, and I think that may have been the, the start of it. Wow. And, and you... So you were born in Mississippi, but you grew up mostly in L.A., mm-hmm. correct? Um, and so this was this was in L.A. where you had teachers who were that oh, yeah. sort of tough love. Oh, yeah. It, well, I wouldn't call it love, but he was well, like just yeah. sort of like frustrated with us. We were pretty mm-hmm. sort of rowdy students, and that's, I didn't have any idea what education was for. And that but, but the same things I, I liked, I excelled in, mm-hmm. you know, playing music and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, but there were some good teachers there. And looking back on it now, I think I had a better education and more of, you know, uh, these students were helped in many ways. Mm-hmm. But now it's just a joke. I, I, I go by these schools and, and uh, in fact, we, Dacille Kim Gibson and I stopped up because we're doing a documentary. We did a documentary on the riots and we visited some of these schools and talked to some of the students. And, and they're like prisons, you know, many prisons and uh uh, you know, they use the same language, you know, lockdown and all that sort of thing like mm-hmm. that. It's, 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 I mean, there, I mean, I'm trying to say is there's a lot of reasons to make films, a lot yeah. of reasons to, to make certain kinds of films, you know. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, th- your your filmmaking is very much a, well, media and, and critics and, and academics have sort of cat- categorized you and, and other filmmakers of your time as the, the part of the L- L.A. Rebellion. And the L.A. Rebellion, that 
I think loosely translates to those of you who came out of UCLA around the same time and were making films, and these were very sort of socially or culturally conscious films. And, well, do you consider yourself a rebel by any, like, is that like something you would uh, attribute to your filmmaking? No, I, I, not really, but I know we were conscious of trying to, to, to counter the sort of narrative Hollywood had been producing and perpetuating these stereotypes and so forth. So we, we were very active mm-hmm. and being aware of what we were trying to do and tell our own stories in, in that sense. But it wasn't like we were wearing a, you know, T-shirts and banners saying we're, you know, you know counter-revolution, whatever. It, I mean, some, right. some, you know, whatever. No, we, we it, 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 uh, it wasn't even a thought on that level. We were thinking about what, you know, what being black was, what was a black film, and... And what it could be. And what it could be, all those yeah. sorts of things, you know. Beyond that, uh, you know, we we didn't have the means to distribute the films or anything like that. So we, we were uh, kind of romanticizing to some extent and, and thinking that somehow making a film that it would get out there and, and not knowing that, well, we kind of knew that it was going to take an effort. You know, it did take, you know, it takes a lot to exhibit a film and to publicize and all that. But we were just... Uh, you know, starting out just thinking we just have to make a film, mm-hmm. you know, keep making films. Yeah. And when you talk about that effort, I mean, it's the the images coming out of that time, the late 60s and in the 70s, when you released your, your first short mm-hmm. film, uh, which was Several Friends, and then you also had Killer of Sheep, which was your debut feature film. And in that period, you're sort of countering the black exploitation movement and and those very popular images. And I think that within several friends and Killer of Sheep, you see, and really throughout all of your filmmaking, you see just sort of slices of life. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about? Well, first of all, were were these a lot of these actors were not professional actors, right? These were people you knew, um, people you found on the streets. Mm-hmm. What what was it like working with that and trying to like call these? Performances or moments out of uh, out of those. those well, I actors. well I, because at UCLA we had to to do something like that and get people you knew to act in the movies and things like that. You right. know, to yeah. act in your films. Um, it wasn't like um, uh, it was a novel thing or it was some new territory. You know, it was a part of making movies. You know, mm-hmm. you 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 borrowed or or took or whatever you could, whatever it took to make a movie. You know. Um, uh, and, and 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 so, I mean, you ended up exploiting everybody and your friends and things like that. And um, but um, you know, it was all for a good purpose. You, you thought anyway. Uh, but uh, it it was fun times. You know, I, I really enjoyed uh, working with actors. But but they they it you know it 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 has its moments. You know, because of non professional and particularly the kids not kids but the young men I worked with and women um, didn't have a clue because one of the one of the one of the ideas of making film was to demystify it in the community. So we had kids working on the film and things like that, and people who never been on either side of the camera before um, involved in it. And uh, uh, you know, you become aware of the disconnect. I remember this one guy I was working with, uh, Ernest Cox, who's been in another film I did, several friends, and. Uh, he uh, was sick one day. It was on, actually he was supposed to be in a uh, killer sheep, and uh, he was sick one day. and And I had shot some footage of him of him already, and he couldn't come. And he said, "Well, can you can can 
another guy take his place, you know. And, <laughs> and play the same role. Yes, yeah, so the same role. I mean, you know, like yeah. uh, sort of set in for him, you know, in a sense. Yeah. And I was like out of breath. I couldn't, you know, it, it's hard to, to sort of realize the person really doesn't understand the process. It's, mm-hmm. not like, it's not like a football game where you can bring in another quarterback, right. you know, and it, it, the game continues, a new pitcher. And, and, and so I had to, to uh, sort of adjust to, to, uh, and, 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 and realize, you know, these guys are doing me a favor. They're coming on the weekend and stuff like that. Just for our listeners, if you haven't seen Killer of Sheep, uh, Killer of Sheep is, is Charles's debut feature film. And it's a very, it's, it's a beautiful film. It's very, not a linear narrative per mm. se. It's very loose and more about the environment and, and the characters. And But there is a central sort of character whose name is Stan, and he works in a slaughterhouse by day, but also comes back to L.A. and with his, like, every day. And he's weary and can't please his wife, and he's just lost. And I, I that's the common theme I've seen throughout a lot of your films is, mm. especially for, well, for men and women, but for especially for men, black men who are just kind of adrift and lost mm. within this world that kind of rejects them. And it kind of goes mm. back to what you were saying about how presently mm. we have all of these mm. schools that are in lockdown. It's like mm. a lot of adriftness. Well, well Stan is adrift. I mean, the reason I, I say this is because he has a moral compass that he follows. True, yeah. And he has principles. And he tries to bring his son up and things like that. And the thing about it is, is that my hero, in a sense, he does what he can do, and he's responsible. Mm-hmm. And if he tries to hold his family together morally and on spiritually and that sort of, he he uh, he's a positive figure. He may not have all the trappings of a, a middle class, whatever it is, that kind of stuff. Right. But he's given his family something, a foundation mm-hmm. that he's in hand. You know, he got and he's handed down. And so, in in, in that sense, uh, I never looked at him as a failure or uh, he's a person who endures. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that's a very a strong, very positive person. True. And and he's, I mean, the, the, the idea is that he's affected by, you know, his environment and his jobs and, and the kind of job he has. You know, I, I didn't want to to make a plotted story as such, but there's a, a sort of a a, a a movement forward. It's uh, every day like a slice of life kind of a thing where mm-hmm. where the. the, the the thread emerges as the story goes and unfolds, and and you see that one day follows the other because there's some things that related to the past, like looking for a job and all, all sorts of things like that. You know, uh, because we were involved in um, making films about social change and commenting on on social conditions, that you know there, there were films being made that were sort of idealizing the poor and all and sort of things like that, and and having a conventional plot about management is exploiting the labor, and then you know, labor forms a union, and then everything is hunky-dory after that. But then in my situation where I grew up, is it wasn't so much the quality of the job, it was having a job, you know. And they suffered for it and things like that. And it's a story about those kind of people. It's a story about my neighbors, you know, that every day did the same thing and working themselves to death, eating themselves to death in the wrong food with high blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. But and uh, making these sacrifices. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one thing about your these earlier films that you've made is that, and even up to, to Sleep With Anger, really, is that they're, you know, the 
the the forces of white people and and institutionalized racism and all of those things are present, but the white people themselves are not always present. They're and they're sort of invisible. And I and, and I I think that's really fascinating that it's you you keep the focus on the people in their communities and in those communities. It, it, I I mean I did not live during those times, but mm. I imagine it was rare for people black people to interact too often with white people there are white people in yeah. these movies but they're not like the the prevailing force like bearing down on them the most obvious connection or interaction with white people were the police department which is basically white and a lot of them were from the south mm-hmm. but you live in a segregated area a community and south central was definitely segregated it was black and brown mm-hmm. you know and so those are the people we relate to except for shop owners and stuff like that and liquor store owners and things. But other than that, uh, it was basically um, and culturally all black. I would love to to talk a bit about your third feature film, which is To Sleep With with Anger. And the reason you're in New York in the studio, uh, partially the reason why is because uh, thankfully the film at Lincoln Center is showing the, showing the movie for the next week or so. Mm-hmm. And your movies are... are they're hard to find online, I will say, um, which you can find them, some of them streaming in different mm-hmm. places. But in terms of, of, I feel like that's the case for, honestly, a lot of the, the your peers, Haile Jarima, mm-hmm. Julie Dash. And it, it is what now to sleep with anger, I know, was like a little bit that was a difficult movie to get made, or at least to get off the ground, correct? No, I mean, we, we've been studying on some scripts for God knows how many years now, you know. Now, that's those are hard to get out of the way, yeah. you know. And they're more commercial, I think, than, in, in, in a sense, than uh, uh, The Sleep With Anger. We were very lucky to to get people like, you know, Ed Pressman, Cotty Chubb, Lena Calissas, and people like that as producers involved in it. Mm. You know, we were very lucky, and the timing was right in many ways. So, um because it wasn't a film that people could really identify. I mean, uh, producers and things like that in Hollywood say, well, I, I can see this is going to do be, do very well at the box office. I was looking at one of these films that I, uh, Merchant Ivory made. They put it out, and uh, it didn't do well at the box office. Uh, it, uh, it had a limited release, but they allowed it to stay in the theaters. And uh, long enough, we started gaining momentum and word of mouth and word of mouth, and finally it started doing very well. And, uh, and it actually won an Academy Award. Uh, was it Howard's Inn or something like that? Now, I think there's an article about it in the paper here. Oh, okay. And um, here now, if the film isn't doing well in the first three or four days, maybe the first night it opens, you know, it's gone. Mm. You know, so it doesn't give a chance. Yeah. Well, so with Just Sleep With Anger, like you said, it's it, it's hard to classify. It's, it's, a, it's a drama, a family drama about a, well, Danny Glover mm-hmm. plays Harry Mention. Mm-hmm. Harry Mention. He's a now he's more of a drifter. He's a he's a guy from the South who kind of just swoops in on an old old friends mm-hmm. who have once lived in the South and now live in L.A. And there's a lot of uh, there's superstition going on. There, uh, the lead character Gideon who is played by Paul Butler. He's frequently telling his grandson these stories uh, and talking about his Toby, which is a good luck charm. Mm. And as soon as Harry Mention comes in, everything goes bad. Mm. The family gets into disarray. Bad things are happening. 
And it's a hard movie to classify. But my first question would be, I have a question here, that tension between sort of the country slash southern world and then the more urban or refined, quote unquote, or even just like we've moved on up sort Mm -hmm. of black family, that's present through a lot of your different a lot of your films. But I think here it's especially crystallized. And being someone who has Southern roots but grew up in L.A., how much of that have you struggled with in your own life in terms of honoring the past but also wanting to move forward? Well, you know, it, it's, I think, for my g- generation, perhaps, I can speak to because I saw it happen a lot mm-hmm. in the community. And we were a generation who came to L.A. in the 40s and 50s and things like that. I think there was, like, the, the earlier movement, a migration, went to Detroit and things like that. I forget what year that was, and there was another one, and so forth. But the, the problem is, 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 at least when I was coming up, there was this attitude about wanting to not do the same things your parents did, not have the same job, not uh, being carpenter, brick masons, or anything like that, mm-hmm. uh, not being house maids or whatever it is, but anything but th- those things. They know what exactly, but not that that you know. Um, so there was this inherent uh, sort of antagonistic kind of relationship between the present and the past and, and your parents and culturally and all this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, there's, I mean, w- w- no one wanted to admit that they were from the South or from the country. I mean, boys, the parents, you know, it was okay for them. You know, yeah. they, you know, uh, had a strange, you know, my, my mother did my talk about it, but one of the things that came out of a conversation, you never go back. Mm. You know, uncle the same way. There's so much, so much. My grandparents are the same thing because yeah. they're from Mississippi, but they moved up to Illinois, and, and okay. they're like, we never want to go yeah. back. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the whole idea of of, of struggling to, to try to to have your self esteem, you know, be a man or a woman, and, and your kids and stuff like that, and being uh, treated in such a manner. You know, I mean, you never forget those kinds of things. You don't want your kids to to to, to experience that. So it was that kind of a situation but at the same time you you can see that there were things about it that 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 they really missed in life mm-hmm. so so we had all those issues that you know to to deal with you know and 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 so Harry man you sort of I want people to be ambivalent about it because if you if you really look at Harry you, you it's all circumstantial you don't see him do anything you hear about maybe he was involved in this crooked deal or murder or whatever it is but it's all sort of hearsay, mm-hmm. and and Harry makes, you know, he do, he doesn't try to be anybody but who he is. You know, makes it very clear. Yeah, and it can be good or bad. And and sometimes, you know, people look at him as as a necessary kind of evil that brings the family, which was parting, brings it together in a more profound and deeper way. So, yeah. um, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Mm-hmm. It's up to the audience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So my second to last question will be, essentially, a couple months ago, I was at the, uh, there is a screening for the 25th anniversary of Boys in the Hood. And John Singleton, he he and Walter Mosley did a Q&A afterwards. And John, uh, John Singleton, he was asked about the state of black film, which I feel like a lot of black filmmakers are, you're, I'm sure you've been asked this many mm-hmm. times. And his answer was that it's, quote unquote, a, a abysmal and dismal and that there's no sort of 
cultural specificity in terms of what we're seeing for for black filmmakers. It's become sort of homogenized and and watered down, and you don't have this sense of place or um, blackness. There's not a black aesthetic. Would you agree with that about the current state of black film? I don't see that many of them, to be honest with you. Uh, and I stopped a while ago. I mean, um, I, I think that, you know, the, I think people are targeting you know the wrong source. On one hand, I think black people ought to get in the business of filmmaking—not so much making films, but in terms of distribution mm, yeah. and exhibiting films. And the audience and 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 people of color have to get in and sort of. Boycott, protest, do whatever it can to make a difference. It's not going to change. It's going to be too slow because Hollywood's going to make films that, you know, if 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 you go see these movies that are the ones you talk about, you don't like or whatever it is, and but you you end up supporting them, and they think, well, they'll come see those films, but they won't come see a, a you know, a relatively good film, you know, and so the, you you send a signal by not supporting good films, you know, and uh, but we we have to make that. You know, uh, a part of our wanting to improve on things is the community and everyone and people want to get into business as so you get in, 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 into distributing films and exhibiting films. You know, I mean, that, that, it's, that, it's a lot of money to do that. Yeah. I mean, that would help a lot. I, I think it, it's great that you, you yourself and, and Haile Jarima and Julie Dash and others like that have gotten sort of the, the cinephile mm-hmm. uh, seal of approval, but. I, I just wish more people were able to see there a wider range of people were able to see your films because I think that it's hard to create that counter narrative when the the prevailing narrative is yeah you know, the the Tyler Perry's of the world or the that sort of thing. Well, you know, if if you go to a movie and you see the trailers of these Hollywood films, whatever it is, they are very appealing and you, there's a buzz. You want to go see it. You know, yeah. you see a, a movie that's character development or whatever it is slow. It doesn't appeal to you. you know, it's like it's hard to sell those movies like such, you know. And the only way to do it is to train people and and, and teach, educate kids, and put it in what what they what they should see. When we were coming up in in, in the sixties and seventies, art films were the were the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, films that said something substantive, you know, and creative, aesthetically, uh, were uh, an, uh, something that we looked forward to, and we had an audience for it. And they kicked that stuff out, you know. Um, you know, uh, and, and so we have to get back to this variety, having a having a diverse and being able to support uh, this diversity. Mm. And it's not to say the the fluff isn't like I enjoy the fluff too from time to time. Yeah, that's, that's but fine. but it's all. I mean, it's not it's not so much that. It's that there's no alternative. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's there's no other. I mean, as long as you do that and just have something, you know, to 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 satisfy other groups of people and things like that. Um, and then the other part is it's not only that, but they keep the other side from from having a say-so, but having a voice, yeah. you know, particularly films of color and black films and, and things where people are going to talk about not just, you know, uh, you know, uh, car chases and stuff like that, but substantive things, you know, like things that, that's going on in the government and community and, and conflicts within, you know, all walks of life that, that that's not trivial. I mean, things that, uh, uh, you know, we face as everyday people in real. Mm. And my final question mm-hmm. would be, can you think of the last time another filmmaker or artist has created something that you've seen that made you feel as if you were represented or you saw yourself in that work? 
It's strange. I just, I'm looking at this film that Hermano uh, Omi did called Tree of the Wooden Clogs. And it's tree, an old, tree of the it's tree of the wooden clogs. Uh, you know, the shoes, those wooden mm-hmm, shoes. Yeah. And uh, I seen it. In, I seen it in in, in 1975, around the time it came out, and I just was blown away by it. To use that phrase. Uh, it's a really remarkable film, and 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 I, I wish people could appreciate that film. What is it about? It's about a a, a a poor family in Italy, a group of people, an ensemble group, who who plant. You know, um, uh, the, he lived in this, this rich person's uh, estate. You know, and 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 they're like serfs, and they just till the land and the soil, whatever it is. And and they're trying to eke out a living, and and, and they have this kid that the priest said he should go to school because he has some talent, and so he does. His father uh, sacrifices a lot for this kid to go to school, this small boy, and he ends up his shoes. You know, one of his shoes falls apart, and so his father has to get in uh, for him to go to school. Continue to get a, uh, some more shoes for him, but he doesn't have the money, so they have to, he has to cut down a tree to, to the landowner's tree, and he makes wooden shoes out of the land out of the tree, and the landowner discovers that the tree is cut down, and he um, kicks him off his property. You know, and the poor family and destitute. You know, that's really sad. But there's all these other little stories in there as well that deals with, you know, um, a peasant life and being explored and stuff. But it's just beautiful. It just takes its time and and, and, and developing these characters where it's uh, it's not a, you know, the kind of narrative, it's not the kind of narrative people are used to, you know, where, again, uh, something happens and you got to kill the guy that shot your brother and all this kind of stuff. Like, no, it, it's, it, it's about life, you know. And if you take time to watch it, you know, you really... Will benefit from, and you see all this other stuff is just crap, you know, competitively speaking. Huh? Well, thank you. I'll have to add that to my ever-growing list of movies I need to watch. Yeah, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not here to advertise anything, but but Criterion, I say that is putting it on, and I really applaud them because it's one of my favorite films, and they're, and they're doing, you know, bringing it out, and I can't wait to get a copy of it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Criterion, so well, I'll t- help you plug yeah. <laughs> inadvertently plug Criterion. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, well, thank you so much, Charles, for well, joining thank you. me again. It was such an honor to have you on the show. And yeah. everyone, if you can find his films online or get them on DVD or get them for your library, you should definitely check them out. They are worth your time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's our show. You'll find links to everything we discussed on our show page. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Berlin Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And what are your Oscar predictions? You should definitely share them with us on our Facebook page, Slate Represent. We'll be looking for them. Until next time.